welcome to Food on the Mind. This is your host, Jeb Stewart Johnston. Uh, I'd like to invite you to head on over to the website if you get a chance. It's at www.foodonthemind.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Grab your free mindful eating guide. Uh, you can even set up a consult call with me. Uh, kind of talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. But mainly for me to help you get better at helping yourself. And now, without further ado, here's our next guest. All right, so uh, this is our, I guess it'll be our second episode, maybe a third if I do a little uh, intro episode for everyone. But today I am with a, uh, a person that I count as a mentor, uh, someone that I, I really respect uh, across a, a wide domain, um, and that is Dr. Lisa Lewis. Um, Lisa is a, uh, a, a clinical psychologist, uh, correct? PsyD, I guess is the proper terminology, correct? I have an um, EDD, which is a doctor of education in counseling and sports psychology. Oh, see, I always thought your, your doctorate was in psychology. So it's, yeah, in, EDD is like a, like a lesser known degree. It's like a PhD, but it was out of the school of education as opposed to out of this college of science. So counseling psychology kind of comes from um working in schools working with veterans working with quote unquote like non-clinical populations although i'm trained as a clinician right. it just comes from a more developmental mental health for for all kind of wellness kind of spectrum as opposed to just clinical psych which is focusing on illness and how to kind of correct it sorry to ah, steal your thunder there no actually that you know it, it actually explains your approach so much better because i do always mm. feel that you have such an educational approach to this this whole thing um which will actually lead really well into uh you know something you've got going on right now uh in terms of, of helping um fitness professionals to understand behavior better um but so so now that i completely blew the uh the introduction the bio um, I, you've got, it's like, like all the people I, I want to interview, everyone's accolades and, and are so diverse that I, I generally, <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm going to throw it to you and let you kind of just give a little bit of your background and, uh, because it's pretty varied and, and it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And actually I'm glad that that came up because, um, you know, when I was pursuing a doctoral degree, I wanted to be a psychologist from the time I was probably a teenager and um, I didn't know all these initials and all these orientations and licensure things. And uh, what I ended up really thinking at that time was that I wanted to be a sports psychologist. I wanted to know about sport and exercise and, and work with high functioning folks. And I wanted to be able to be a healthcare practitioner. So it was, it's a, it was a long windy road, but I ended up in a program that was counseling and sports psychology, hence why I'm a counseling psychologist as opposed to a clinical psychologist, which is more common, even though a lot of our training is the same. And I ended up in a doctor of education program because that program was in the school of ed as opposed to a PhD or a PsyD program. And it was more about the program itself and where it would get me than actually me like thinking an EDD is better than this or that. Or, and in fact, like a lot of people are like EDD, what's that? You know, it's a, um, there's not a lot of us out there <laughs> that have is, EDDs. Is that what Dr. Joe Biden is? 
She may be, yes. So I think um, she is. Uh, she probably so. is because when I was in school, you know, the first maybe semester or two that I was enrolled in the program, I was taking the classes that anybody who was going to get a doctor of education needed. And then, and those, some of those courses were about like pedagogy and education. So some of those students in there wanted to be like superintendents or, you know, in higher ed. So I think that mm -hmm. that's that track. Um, but then we were this little program tucked into the school of ed you know, this, this counseling psych program. And when I've, I've met other counseling psychologists, some of them have PhDs because the counseling program is uh, like at Northeastern, for example, it's in the college of, I think, health sciences, which is a PhD mm. program. But so anyway, there can be different, <laughs> different things, um, different initials that people are called, but my journey, gosh, where did my journey start? Um, you know, I got a master's degree in clinical counseling, which was, you know, the practice of psychotherapy, but for clinical populations. And that degree, um, I got, I actually got that degree with my bachelor's degree together. So some schools call it like a four plus one, but in five years I graduated with a bachelor's and a master's together. And that was for a master's level counselor job. So depending on what state you're in, that might be called a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed professional counselor. Um, and I started working in psychiatric hospitals, uh, which before you're licensed is really kind of the only place you can work is like institutions, community mm -hmm. health centers. Um, and I worked on, on a couple of detoxes and, um, I always knew I wanted to go back to school, but, uh, when I was getting my master's degree, I was like applying to sports psych programs and I really had no idea. I applied to programs that were only for research and somebody would call me because back then you pick up the phone and call people and they would say like, <laughs> you want to be a practitioner? Like we don't train practitioners here. We just are all research. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> so the first time I tried to get into a program, I didn't get into one. I really didn't know what I was looking for. Um, and then I moved to Boston and, um, I, the first winter I was very miserable. I hated it here. So I was like, I'm going to apply to all the right sports psych programs and I'm going to move wherever I get in. And I got into BU, Boston University and Northeastern. <laughs> um, well, and we should, we should point out that, that you are from South Florida. So yes, <laughs> quite, I am, quite I, am, a... <laughs> I forgot to say that, that I am a Floridian. So um, the first winter I was like, what? kind of I shouldn't even say winter it's really the spring because I went to college in New Jersey and you know it's over in like March or April right done so I thought oh Boston will be the same thing uh, nope so in like May I was like homicidal I I, I was really like I, there's no way I can it's, do this it's a special kind of cold in Boston <laughs> special well mm -hmm. and so, and so that's that I think but that, I think that's kind of hilarious too is that you you didn't get into the first program you applied to and you're like I'm just going to apply and the places you get into are BU and Northeastern it's it's not like it's not like the schlub schools or so it's not like the, the university yeah. of the uh you know the the Caribbean or whatever well the thing I don't know if anybody out there like is interested in trying to go to grad school but what I found to be so interesting about doctoral programs, like PhD programs, if you will, is that there are these usually these teeny tiny little programs. And really what's bringing you in is like the, the faculty person who has similar research interests, or it's not like applying to undergrad where you have to have like all these amazing stats. I mean, yes, you need to have GRE and 
you know, I needed to have an education, of course, and experience, but really there, maybe they're going to fill two, three, four spots and they're looking for someone who will fit what the program is about and, and all of that. So um, I think, you know, if there's people out there who've applied for PhD programs and haven't gotten in, it's not just about your stats. It's really about this like relationship, I think, with the program. There's also, so, from, mm-hmm. just from the, 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 the people I, I talk to so often, you know, and, and so many of my friends and my network are people who have you know, had their PhDs for a while now and, and maybe don't necessarily work directly in the field. But it's so interesting to get that, that viewpoint of like a lot of your specialty isn't necessarily because you were interested in this thing. It's just because you went to this place and this is the research lab and this is the research they do. And someone handed them a dissertation basically. and was like, Oh yeah, this is what you're going to be working on for the next five years. And you're like, okay, I guess this is now my life's work. So <laughs> it's the romanticized vision of like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to study and I'm going to embrace my this research and I'm going to learn about this thing. And it's like, no, it's, I got someone handed me something and I was like, okay, here, here goes the next five years. Yeah. It's a really, it's a strange little world. Um, and it, it's interesting because they ask you from the get go, like, why do you want this degree? What do you want to do with it? What do you see yourself doing? And most of us end up doing something very different than maybe what we fantasized or what we said in our interview. Um, Because along the way, you're learning what you care about and what you like or the research that comes in front of you or, you know, just how things unfold over the course of the years. So, you know, I think that's kind of how I, I started chasing sports psychology. I think initially I viewed myself as wanting to do performance enhancement with athletes, but really as I got going in the program and was working with athletes and was learning the curriculum, I I just loved, I was more interested in exercise and motivation. I was more interested in helping not just athletes, but anybody go from good to better or from just fine to, to excelling or just evolving like that personal evolution that I think we're all on that journey, just different places along the spectrum. So I liked that getting to practice with this wide variety of people who are at all different levels of functioning, who really at the end of the day, everybody's looking for self-enhancement, you know, leveling up. Um, They're just, we're just all at different places. So, you know, working in clinical psych was, you know, trying to help somebody kind of get to baseline or just to function really. Whereas in my doctoral program, there was that I, what I did have to go through more clinical training and be in more clinical settings, but the spectrum was just really opened up for me. And I, I love that practice of being a generalist of, Mm -hmm. of seeing folks with different presenting problems at different levels of functioning. Um, I think it, it challenges me to be dynamic, to change the way I'm thinking and communicating and um, to adjust like the speed I'm working with or the level of challenge I'm working at. And so I really wanted to be able to, to keep doing that. Um, and so at the kind of the end of my training, I found college counseling and working in college mental health is just that because it's any kind of person could come in anything from like, I, I'm a straight A student and I'm in law school, but I just broke up with my boyfriend mm-hmm. and I need three sessions <laughs> to talk about that uh, all the way to I'm having my first psychotic break, you know, at age 18 and and probably looking at a God. diagnosis of schizophrenia. So right. Because really that's such formative so years. Yeah. Right. 18 to 24 is when. Whew. Right. A lot of stuff can initially present itself. Well, and the reason I know that is because I was convinced 
because uh, I, I, I have a bit of a, uh, um, a fatalistic mindset. I was convinced that one day I was going to wake up because I knew my mom's a psychologist. So I knew the parameters of like every, you know, psychiatric illness. There is. So I was like mm-hmm. convinced someday between 18 and 24, I was going to wake up and I was going to be schizophrenic and there's no way to control that or know it's going to happen. And so I have you know, my neuroses. <laughs> it's always that I'd wake up one day. So like when I turned like 25, I was like, I think I'm in the clear. I think I'm good now. Like I'll be okay. <laughs> so anyone out there that wants a little glimpse into my mind that, that takes it. So you, you worked, um, and so I, I think I, I kind of want to like talk a little bit about the shift, and then we'll kind of get into kind of the meat of, of things. But, but so you have a background too of like you of working with addiction, with working with substance abuse, yeah. um, and so, and, and and now you're working again, very generalist, but you also have a, a big foot in the fitness industry. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you you what your background is with addiction and, and, and um, substance abuse and then like how that shift both helped you and kind of maybe pushed you into this other world. Yeah. Uh, so substance abuse was never something I was interested in working in or learning about. I remember getting my master's degree and being like, I don't need to take that class. I'm never going to work in substance abuse. And um, from my first internship, so I started practicing psychotherapy in 2002 so even at that first placement, part of that was substance abuse. It, back then, they called there was a unit. It was called MICA, uh, mentally ill, chemically addicted. I'm sure this expression does not exist anymore. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty, uh, it's pretty stigmatizing. But um, so from the get go, I was around substance abuse. And then when I moved to Boston, my job was 100% in substance abuse. And you know, substance abuse is about um, doing something you don't want to do, engaging in behaviors where the consequences far outweigh the benefits after a certain amount of time. Um, and what it forces people to do is take a good hard look at themselves, try to get out of their own way, change their habits, um, and stop doing something that's harmful and start doing things that actually could help them to progress and grow. And that theme applies to every single person on earth you know, whether you identify as alcoholic or addicted to opiates or, you know, all of us do something that we lie about. And that in that, in the broadest sense is addiction. It's interesting you point that out because, uh, you know, one of the things in my own personal journey uh, through addiction and recovery is, is the, 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 the biggest relief for me came the day that I decided that I was no longer going to lie about it and just like, did a blog post about it, like put it on social media and people were like, wow, this is so brave. And I was like, so, so you share whatever. I was like, this is totally selfish. I was like, you guys, this is not about helping anyone else. This is about me just putting it out there. And it's, it was as dumb as being when I, the first time I quit drinking, I was a bartender in Baltimore and the guys that were the bouncers and some of the guys that worked at that bar went around to every single bar in town and said, if I find out you serve Jeb alcohol, I'm coming back here. I'm going to crack you over the head with a bat. Mm. And it was, so it was this thing of like, they told on me. And so this time I kept, you know, I moved and did all the things. And and so I told on myself, but it's like that thing. We all lie about something and, and there's that old. 12 step thing of like, we're only as, as sick as our secrets or whatever. That's right. But it's such, That's it's right. such a little thing that being like transparent and honest, um, because it could be, like you said, people could be lying about having an extra handful of almonds. You got nobody, it. Nobody, nobody's judging them. 
but they're judging themselves. And so it's that, that really like shame circle. Um, oh yeah. And so you've said it. So that transition, what brought you then into the fitness world as it, as it is? Yeah. So as this is happening, you know, I'm putting myself through school. I continue to work in substance abuse for a while going through school. And I just realized that I always had this love of motivation and performance and self-enhancement. And I realized more and more how much overlap there was in recovering from addiction and this whole like performance, self psychology and self-enhancement. And really there was nobody around me who had the same perspective. So people in the sports psych program were usually not coming from clinical backgrounds. They were, they were athletes, ex-athletes, maybe coaches. You know, I really always wanted to be a clinician. I didn't want to be a sports psychology person who was just doing performance enhancement. I like to get my hands in the issues, but a lot of my friends that I was in school with, they didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted to just do like team cohesion, performance enhancement, you know, working with athletes in non-clinical ways. So then, um, I, I mean, I always have loved strength training and fitness. Um, and so I, you know, met someone who is now my husband, who's a strength coach and who does a lot of speaking and a lot of writing. And, um, for the listeners who may not know, his name is Tony Gentlecore. And, um, you know, as we were dating and then moved in together, we just started having more and more conversations about the psychology of coaching and in coaching you need counseling skills which are just communication skills that are focused on one person as opposed to this reciprocal relationship and you need to understand psychology of behavior change and resistance and habits and addiction really because your your whole role is to help people change their behaviors that they feel ambivalent about changing whether those are nutrition related or training related and so my husband would be at workshops or on podcasts and people would be asking him questions about working with tricky clients. And he'd say, I think you need to ask my wife this question because this is not really my wheelhouse or it's more her wheelhouse. So that led to me writing some blogs, uh, you know, being on some podcasts myself, my husband and I doing a workshop together called Strong Body, Strong Mind. Um, and then I actually... Um, got invited to do some workshops with Artemis Scantilides, who is a strength coach. And um, she she had a workshop called um, I'm Not Afraid to Lift, which was kind of geared towards women and encouraging them to strength train. Um, and then there were other people in the industry who were just not my husband, but who sort of wanted to open the door or collaborate with me. Um, and so little by little, I just had these increasing opportunities to step into the fitness space um, because I think in the fitness space, you're working with addictive behaviors, you're working with mm -hmm. resistance to change, you are operating psychologically, even if you don't consider yourself a mental health professional, you are thinking psychologically all the time. And I just think in fitness, there's no education and really no support for mm -hmm. you, even though you're doing pretty emotional, psychologically taxing, complicated work. Yeah, and I should note that I actually found you because of your you had that that strong body, strong mind um, workshop, and it was in Boston. I was going to go up for it, and I remember it was like a weekend. I had like I had bought tickets for a concert already or something, so I couldn't go. But then you you spoke at Kansas City, and I remember being like, okay, like 
I was already at the point in, in the fitness industry kind of part of it that I was kind of tired of the fitness part. And I really didn't, I wasn't interested in taking any more fitness courses or going to any more fitness or nutrition seminars, like the behavior stuff. And I was like, this is my entree. So I, I that was, um, you know, the impetus for me to go out there, but it's, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's been life changing for my coaching and I'm going to pump your, your tires a little bit here. Um, since working with you is, you know, it's, it's probably been like a year and a half now we've been working together. Um, but just looking at these things and, and developing these skills, first of all, I find it way more interesting than just like programming or nutrition stuff. Like, like you said, like working with these people in the psych sports psych program that didn't want to deal in the clinical standpoint, I'd be like, man, that, that sounds really boring. Just doing like, like the team, just doing the team stuff. Like that doesn't sound that fun. Like the, the, yeah. the, the work is the fun, but, um, and so before, and we're going to, we'll, 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 we'll come back to this, but I do want to say that, um, you know, if you are a fitness professional who's listening, uh, Lisa's course, um, uh, psych skills for fit pros is the mm -hmm. title, correct? correct? Okay. Um, it's phenomenal. I mean, I, I went through it, uh, when she, before she released it, I went through the whole thing. It's, it's really amazing. And it's, um, it's really just a solid overview of things that, I think every single person in the fitness industry should understand at least, or at least have gone through um, specifically just like self-determination theory, trans theoretical model of change. I mean, those two things alone, I think if people just had a slight background in those, they would, if, if not, it would be easier. They would understand better. Um, and so I think just that part of the course, but there's also like for people who are really into like I mean, you, you interview how many people, like, like there's 10 different like in-depth interviews with, with leaders in the industry. There's there, um, I think there's five, maybe six. There might be six. So it felt like every, it's felt like every chapter had a, had a, a yep. Every chapter does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so obviously I, I am exaggerating on your behalf. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so, I mean, if you know, and we'll, we'll come back to that and we'll tell everyone where they can find that and hear a lot of the show notes and everything. But, uh, but it is something I definitely want to say, like, if you do work in this, actually, even if you don't, even if you're just someone who likes to exercise, I, I, this is stuff that maybe everybody should really could educate themselves on. And it, it's, it's really just beneficial things that, that, um, that you can learn and, and you're not stepping into that world of like, now you're, you're not, you're not playing counselor. Um, and it actually, I think it actually helps to, to stay in your lane, to know where those, where the lines are. I think a lot of professionals don't understand where the lines are. Yes. And I think this idea of staying in your lane makes people skittish. It makes people mm -hmm. hesitate. And I think it interferes with the authenticity of your relationship with your clients. Because if you start getting worried, uh Oh, they're talking about feeling down or they're talking about having a panic attack. Like I'm supposed to stay in my lane and say like, I can't talk to you about that. It just kind of removes, like it messes up the rapport you have with your clients. So this whole idea of staying in your lane, you know, I think of the lanes as being in the pool as opposed to being on a track. You know, the pool is filled with water and all the water goes everywhere. Your clients are going to talk to you about their mood, their relationships, their sleep, you know, things that are psychological in nature. And it's going to come into your lane and that's okay. Their health and their fitness and it, it, their nutrition is part of their mental health, you know, how you communicate around that and how you support them, um, you can do in the scope of your work without putting on the hat of a mental health professional. So 
I think let's let's kind of pivot into that. And you know, we've we've already spoken a lot about motivation. Um, so we're in a time right now, uh, which we've talked about before, of basically collective trauma, mm. where every single person, to some degree, in the last we're going on a year now almost in the last year has suffered a, a traumatic experience and it continues to whether they've been acutely affected by someone dying of COVID or their business closing or even just this, this underlying tension of, of not knowing or of realizing that, wow, all the things I thought I had control over were all illusory. Um, it's been really, really hard on a lot of people. And, and we're, we're kind of brushing that mental health aspect under the rug. Now, how can people start to look at not just surviving, but kind of thriving in this environment? Like where, you know, and again, my, my pet project to get the world, especially fitness, to understand the actual meaning of motivation how can people start to not maybe heal themselves but but get themselves back to a point where they're not just because we're getting again we're on a year now the vaccine's coming you know things are going to change how do they get back to that point of of no longer living this almost not even post-traumatic that's this traumatic stress and, and and start to move past it um, without obviously oversimplifying that statement. Mm, mm. Well, I certainly agree that everybody on the planet Earth has experienced a terrible loss, whether that be, you know, their day-to-day -day life or their job or um, people that they love. Um, I think that we've all gone through something that will stay with us forever. I, I think about people who survived World War II or that whole baby boomer generation. I mean, the entire culture was affected by living through that in the days after that. And I think our world will be the same post COVID world. Um, what, what I appreciate about the pandemic is that the stigma around asking for help and saying that psychologically you don't feel good has come way, way down because we've all had this shared experience of like, of course you feel depressed. Of course you feel grief. Of course you feel anxious, you know, I do not have a colleague in mental health who has an open spot for a new client right now. Every single person I know is completely booked. And I think it, you know, the reaching out for help is a lot less um, unusual if everybody gets like, of course you feel the way you feel. Um, so I'm glad for that. And I hope that stays around. I also think telehealth has really exploded and people feel much more comfortable doing it. So I think that is around to stay. So I think, you know, as people go through whatever process they're going to go through of um, not even getting back to their old life, but creating whatever this post COVID life is, um, there probably is going to be some grief that's involved. There probably is, are some habits that got going during COVID times that maybe you want to change or get rid of. Um, and those things take time. You know, it's been a year of our life and it's going to be more than a year that all of this has been going on. Um, so it's not a simple answer, but I think first just recognizing what we've all been through. The most common, most common statement I have heard from my clients over the past eight months um, 
is first they will tell me something about feeling stressed or it feeling hard or then being kind of tired of this. And then right away before the period is even like the ink is dry on that period, they'll say, but I shouldn't complain because I know other people are, you know, fill in the blank, unemployed, really sick, don't have food. So immediately I hear this almost like survivor's guilt from people that, oh yeah, you know, I don't deserve to complain about the effect that this has had on my life because so many other people have worth. And I actually think that that's not of benefit. I mean, I get, oh, no. I think being grateful is good, but you should not dismiss the effect that this has had on you. I think it's important to recognize the significance of it. So recognizing it and then saying, okay, what, what systems do I need to put in place? What kind of support do I need to add to counteract this, you know, situation um, that has taken so much from me? Because if you minimize it, then you're like, oh, I just need to suck it up and deal with it. As opposed to like, no, I need better self-care and better nutrition mm -hmm. and more people around me to help me than I had before. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because yeah, one of the things that I see a lot is that someone, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has it worse or these people have it worse. And, and my, my thing is always like, we don't have a barometer that feels other people's feelings. So the worst thing, like I was talking to my wife the other night, I was like, if I, I guarantee almost everyone can remember the absolute worst pain in their entire lives was that first girlfriend or boyfriend breaking up with you. Uh, and you were probably, and, and, and think about this, the, the entirety of your relationship was that you passed them a note saying, will you go out with me? And they test you one that said, <laughs> yes, you probably, maybe you held hands. Maybe you had a little peckish kiss, but that was the most excruciating because you had never felt anything like that. Mm. So when we have these new experiences, like just because someone else, our worst is still our worst. And if that worst is a hangnail, it's still the most horrifying pain you've ever felt. So you don't really have the barometer to understand that this pain could be deeper. But it's almost like we say that because our worry about the perception of how we will come across. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be perceived as um, feeling sorry for myself or complaining or because we've been told don't complain. And it's like, you're not, you're, you're just, and, and again, you, you, you know, you're the one that, that obviously is, is, has helped me think about a lot of these things, but uh, talking about this idea of like describing emotions and, and understanding what they are. Mm -hmm. It's not complaining when you're identifying these things because yes. you're actually working to fix them. Yes. I, I actually, it's not unusual when I first start working with somebody for them to say, I'm sorry, I've been complaining for the whole last 45 years. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that to me ever. It really doesn't. And I say, you're expressing how you feel that complain is not that. And you're doing what you're mm -hmm. supposed to be doing, which is, you know, talking about the things that are hard for you and how you want to make them better. Uh, but, but I do think there's that, and not necessarily that they care about how they're coming across to me, but I think in general, people who have enough, I, you know, I work with a lot of people who they are still lucky enough to work. They do live in the United States in a first world country with healthcare and, you know, they have a lot going for them. So I, I do think there's that, like, I shouldn't complain. And I hear this all the time in mental health. I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't be depressed. I, I should be able to do dot, 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 because I have all the resources I need. 
Um, you know, I'm not somebody who's homeless or I'm not somebody who was orphaned or I'm not somebody who people make all kinds of reasons up why they should be, you know, feeling and doing their best. Um, but if you're not, you're not, and there's nothing wrong with saying it. Yeah. It's, um, again, you know, I primarily am working with people who are, are trying to lose weight or struggling and, yeah. and these, these, these struggles, the 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 outside view is that everyone comes in, they do like some kind of nutrition counseling or whatever, and, and they lose a bunch of weight in their head. But like a lot, a lot of times, it's not about. There's not weight loss. It's it, maybe there's no weight loss. You know, maybe there's a lot of other things to unpack before we can even even start getting to that that aspect. Um, and it is a lot of times it's people are like I shouldn't, I shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't. They're so caught up in how in almost judging the, the emotions that they can't actually look at them. And it's also, I mean, that's really hard to do, right? Like to look at a situation. I mean, and I think that's what therapy really is, is it's, it's getting that objective view because I can't look at myself with any objectivity. I, I'm, you know, I'm a disaster. Like I can't look at, but, but I can have a therapy session and that external, view that external objectivity helps me to put my stuff in perspective. Mm. I think it gives the opportunity to examine emotions and thoughts objectively, as opposed to judging them. Once you judge it, you lose functionality. Like when somebody said, you know, why do I keep eating all these extra calories on the weekend? Like I must you know, I must be a loser. I must be a failure. I must be a pig or, you know, whatever. First of all, that's something you would never say to somebody else. It's mean and it's criticizing. But second of all, let's say, yes, you are an outrageous pig and there's no hope for you. Like, where do we go from there? There is no usefulness out of that judgment. You, mm. you cannot make anything out of that. It's like a dead end. So you keep yourself from being able to problem solve and make change if you go to judgment. If you can somehow suspend your judgment or make a little space from the judgment and look at the behavior, what do I get out of that behavior? What's nice about that behavior? What would it be like if that behavior were gone? Then you can actually maybe brainstorm changing it. So being judgmental, I think often is that barrier that keeps people from getting out of their own way. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of kind of the the entirety of like a mindfulness practice is is trying to view things you know with non attachment and non judgmental mm -hmm. uh, behaviors because you're right it is it's a barrier to um, to growth. Now, within that realm, you know the the thing that that a lot of people are having trouble with. <laughs> I saw a great meme today, and I always like to reference memes now because. I'm old enough that my friends point out that they're not actually memes a lot of times. <laughs> I'm just, I can't tell the difference. Um, but there was something that was said like, like this pandemic's been gone on long enough that I've uh, gotten in shape and back out of shape again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but so, and, and honestly, this, there's this cyclical nature that's, that I've seen. So we yeah. saw when things first started, um, I saw a lot of clients that were like, this is actually great. My social life's been taken away. I lost a lot of weight. To and then things started being reintroduced. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, all those habits, it was like, ooh. I got, and, and you start to see that people's personalities really um, 
are, are very big drivers in their behaviors in, in that like yeah. someone like me, it doesn't matter if all the bars and restaurants are open. I don't really socialize. So it's not a, it's not a thing, but for people who are really extroverted and really want to get out there, like all of a sudden that's a big barrier. So in this kind of waxing and waning, um, these changes, the biggest complaint that I hear or not complaint, we're not gonna use that word. The biggest, uh, struggle obstacle that, that I hear from, from clients is I just can't find the motivation to X, Y, Z work out right. like, like how, you know, and, and they're always like, how do, how do I get motivated? And, and, um, you know, that, that, that in itself is a, is a trap, but, but it's like, you know, that's, that's what people, people say like, I, and again, for professionals that work in this industry, go take the course and you'll understand it better. But, but for people at home that are just like, Hey, I just, I just can't seem to get up and go work out. Or I just can't seem to like, like what, what kind of things can people start to do to quote unquote, find that motivation? Mm -hmm. So first of all, if they're saying that and they're complaining about that and they feel some kind of way about that, that is motivation. So the person who is not motivated is not seeking your services. They are not telling you that in an email or on the phone. They're not because they don't care. <laughs> they're not motivated. So there's this whole, you know, a lot of people experience like this ambivalence, like, oh, I just want to, you know, lose 10 pounds or I need to stop doing this behavior or I need to cut it out with all the Oreos. Why aren't I motivated to do it? Like that energy, that angst, that frustration <laughs> is motivation. So what they, what they are getting at is like, I'm not executing because there's some competing motives that are getting in the way. <laughs> um, or I'm not harnessing the motivation that I have in the right way. So they, they could be paying you and paying for a gym membership and spending money on like the low fat, low carb, um, omega three Oreos or whatever, you know, they could be expending all of that energy because they're motivated. Um, but it's not coming out in fat loss for them. So I think it's really important to get in the weeds and, and see, uh, again, what are they getting out of those behaviors? Like, what is it that they want? Is there another way to get those needs met? Like if the Oreos are like the treats, the special thing to look forward to or an escape or something that reminds them of, I don't know, being home with their siblings when they were a kid and having snack time after school. Like, is there another way to get those needs met? Is there another way to meet that so that you can actually execute your goals better? Um, I think I'm, I think I'm not exactly answering your question <laughs> as no, like, pointedly you, as you want me to. You don't, you, you mentioned the one thing that honestly has, has that you, you said to me once and has made, made a big difference in my practice because it's something I come back to a lot of times. And that's that if you are engaging in a behavior, it's because you're getting something out of it. So, so often they're eating the Oreos. And like you, you just said is what, what are you getting out of that? What is that giving you? Because if we can start to see that all of a sudden, then, then like you said earlier, we start to take the judgment away from the Oreo eating because now it's like, Oh, well, okay. Well, this actually makes sense why I'm eating the Oreos. Okay. Can, and like you said, then we find the alternatives. So I think that like, even though we kind of glossed over it, like that is for me personally working with people that has been such a huge help to ask them that question. Yeah. And have them start to examine it because like you said, it's, it comes down to that judgment all of a sudden. 
oh, okay, like I actually am getting something out of this. It does yes. remind me of a childhood. And it's like, okay. Um, so I think that, and again, it, this was also my backdoor way to be like, hey, guess what? You have motivation. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, you know, for, for, for you to, to, to say that is um, because there is a motivation there. And it's just not what maybe we classify as mo- you know, motivation has come to mean. Like I always, I always say like the, the poster of the, the cat hanging on the cliff that says hang on hang in there or whatever <laughs> like that that is like you know that is encapsulated what motivation is like oh well you know just just scream at someone or or watch a david goggins video or something that I, and I think people confuse kind of that 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 thing like they think that they feel like they should wake up and like everyone that goes to the gym it's like that someone like someone like i think a better point is like someone says to me like you know you're so motivated like to go to the gym or you're not like, what do you do when you're not motivated? I was like, the thing is I'm so internally motivated to go work out that when I don't want to do it, I do it. It's not because I'm disciplined over motivation or something. No, I'm, my motivation has just moved in a direction so far that I don't need to get hyped up. It's like, it sucks. I'm going to go do it. Like, because this is what I do. And I think that it's hard to explain to people, but, but I think if people can start to understand, and again, back to talk about the course, if fitness professionals can understand that they can start to work people along that continuum of motivation of being, you know, starting at like, why am I such a slob and eating Oreos to, um, Oreos are great as a treat. And I have three of them. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the points that you're getting at too, is the importance of meeting the individual where they're at. Like the way that I just heard you describe training as regularly as you do, you know, you sort of said something like, I don't see, I'm not really disciplined. It's just, this is, and I would describe you as disciplined, but for you, that's not your word. And so I think people have words and ways that they think about things, but they're not aware of it. And they have reasons why they're enjoying the Oreos, mm-hmm. even though they don't want to, but they're not aware of it. So I think being a good coach is helping that person get to understand their own behaviors and what what is the purpose or what are the pros and cons of those behaviors and helping them to really weigh pros and cons as opposed to them feeling like I really, really wanted to go to the gym, but I wasn't motivated enough. Well, you sound pretty freaking motivated because we talk about it every single week. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what happened because you know maybe what's happening is the partner who's not going to the gym is like, oh, I miss you. We haven't gotten to see each other. Like, why don't you sit down with me and watch a show or your kids finally done with remote learning and they want to play or, you know, there could be 15 other things that are going on that are important to talk about. So I think that we, as human beings, we kind of mean coach ourselves. Like we should just do it. We should just suck Mm -hmm. it up. There's no excuses and cut the shit and all that. And I think that is so unproductive. Um, Once somebody's coming for help, like that can be a first pass. If that gets somebody to change their behaviors, awesome you know mazel tov but if you're having trouble changing you need to explore with your judgment suspended well i think that's a great point kind of coming back to that like idea of the difference of like working with athletes and working with you know more clinical populations um you know there's certain clients i have who are like you know and even my athletes you know off season is definitely like time to talk more about emotions and things that are difficult but like when it goes when it clicks into in season and it's like it's about results they're like hey can i have a cheat meal on friday are you where you want to be no then no 
like you know it's there's no there's yes. no there's no like oh well let's talk about you know how will that affect you it's like no at this time of year your goal is your goal and and that supersedes every single thing else yeah um, well that person has buy-in right they're on oh, board yeah. with you they're compliant in their behaviors i think that there is like not to say that we should never give advice and we should never be directive because there are there are those sweet spots where it's mm-hmm. the perfect time to give advice or directives um, because the person's on board. But that's only a small percentage of this whole <laughs> interaction. It's not, I think a lot of us go into probably coaching and nutrition and maybe psychotherapy thinking like, this person's gonna be like, all right, tell me everything to do and then I'm gonna go execute it. <laughs> and actually that's not how it goes at all, you know? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's always funny for me because I get the, um, like, oh, I'd like to work with Jeb because I need someone like give me tough love because my uh-huh. outward image. And I'm like, <laughs> you've come to the wrong place. I'm, I'm the worst at yeah. that. Like, I'm I'm <laughs> never going to yell at you. I'm never going to say that what you did is bad. Like, I have zero moral judgment about anything you do. Um, I'm proud of you for making the progress you're making, whether you see it as progress or not. Uh, it's like, sorry to disappoint. But yeah, it's it's again, like, and I think the more I do this, the more I realize how it is not productive. Yeah. And people have this, I think they do it to themselves. And Mm -hmm. then sometimes they're looking for, they think they want that in a coach or, um, and, and honestly, when you gave that example, I, I think about athletes who I've worked with and when I meet them, a lot of athletes, the first session, they they feel like sort of a sense of failure or powerlessness that they've come to ask for help. Um, (sighs) because they've been trained, it's been drilled into their head for years. You just try harder, you just put your head down and you bust your ass and you don't complain. And if you're in pain, you don't say anything about that. And um, there's a lot there that is making it hard for them to reach out and get support. And I think that voice you know, that they hear, that inner coach um, has played a large part in creating whatever situation they're dealing with. And it's very active when they're trying to work their way out of it. Um, So you probably have clients too, who on some level they understand, like I shouldn't beat myself up about the Oreos or, you know, they start to have that kind of like rational understanding, but they still have the feelings, you know, they still struggle with Mm -hmm. the setbacks. Um, And it takes a long time to get rid of that. Have you seen a change generationally? And the reason I ask is because when I, when I, I got sober this most recent time and I talked about it. Um, for me, my, I never would talk about my alcoholism because it was, even in my generation, I feel like it was still looked about, upon as weakness. Um, and yeah. when I did, I worked at a, I was coaching at a CrossFit gym and like I had a lot of, you know, mid twenties kids that were working out there. And every single one of them was like, oh, man, like, you know, I had a problem with Adderall. or Oh, yeah, I did opioid. My cousin's addicted to this. Oh, yeah, I totally get it, man. It's a disease. And, it's, and it was just like that was part of the greatest thing was this overwhelming feeling of like, wow, attitudes have completely changed around this. And it's open. Like t- discussing it doesn't seem as mm. as taboo as it once was. And do you see that feel like maybe generationally athletes and, and young people are, feel more open to asking for help? I do think that I think each generation is exposed to more and more education. They see more and more, you know, people around them asking for help or speaking up. Um, I think it's been normalized, you know, in their development. Um, 
And also I think it's been normalized to like have that kind of reaction, like a, a reaction of acceptance and of understanding, I think is much more emphasized with young people than of like rejection or judgment or fear. There's just like I a think, heightened level of acceptance and awareness. I think that's out there now. Yeah. Cause it's like, cause I would always think that, like, cause that's something I've worked on personally because I know, you know, I, I, I was worked in hair forever, so I worked around a lot of women and gay men. Like that was, you know, and I was talking to my to my wife about like the guys in my life that are how so positive because I never had guy support. I mean, I had guy friends, but like mostly I was always around women. Like it wasn't like I didn't have that like locker room, you know, group. Mm. Mm. Uh, but but so I was all the joke was is like everyone I worked with, every woman knew that if she wanted something or needed something, all she really had to do was just cry. And I'd say, and it was, and I would just be like, ah, whatever you could ask, like if I was the boss and you were like, I, I want to go home for the week, I'd be like, fine, just stop crying. Like, as long as you stop crying, you can do whatever you want. Like, it's, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but I've, as I've started to try and get more in touch with my own emotions and uh, understanding others, I have a lot less of that kind of, like you said, fear reaction, which I think is, is a lot more common in, in guys my age and, and definitely older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't even think I need to like expound on what you just said even more. I completely agree. And it's very refreshing. It's very, um, I think heartening. we often talk about things that are wrong with young people or like the way kids today are this, that, and the other thing. But I actually think, and I teach, you know, at, at a local university here, right. I, I see them as being way more open, much better advocates for themselves way more accepting um i see a lot of of strength and i so i think also the importance of recognizing like things that we've been through i mean that's a result of our generation and older generations not liking the way that we were treated or rejected or judged yeah. or criticized or closed off from things so there are positive ways um that society changes and that's one of the ways um that i see now it's just a matter of of trying to get policy in line with with uh what works you know like you said we've got acceptance of therapy now we just need policy to to bring because again you know it's like we talked about what i do for a living what you do for a living we're we're, we're kind of behind a paywall we kind of we cater to a certain socioeconomic status mm. um and of all things i can think of that there should be equity in um, I mean, you know, healthcare, I just had Tommy on and, and him and I talked about Dr. Tommy Wood and him and I talked about how, you know, healthcare should be a right. I think mental health is right up there on the top of that list. Um, and so, you know, not to get on a, a soapbox rant, but, but if there's anything where there should be equity, it, it's that access to, to just be able to take care of yourself, like self growth, self awareness, self, you know, change shouldn't be limited to, to those of us that can afford it, which unfortunately it, it, mm. In a lot of ways, it is. Mm. I think there's more doors. There's more pathways. There's more accessibility for people who have more, mm -hmm. you know, people who have more money. So, um, and yes, more acceptance I think, yeah, in, in and communities as well. Yeah, I agree with that. So the more education your family has or your, the people around you in your community has, the more open they're probably going to be to those things. Um, and the more, you know, supportive they're going to be of it. I do have clients and I've had many clients over the years who they would never tell their parents they're in counseling or they're talking to a therapist. I remember once I had a client, um, 
he was from Kenya and he was like, mental health is not a thing. Like my parents would be like, what are you doing? And I used to give this, um, like this presentation to the, to the parents at orientation at college, like they drop their kids off and then all come to this lecture hall. And I had this slide that said counseling, it's a thing. (laughs) And here's what it is. And here's why it matters because it doesn't have to be Kenyan culture. It can be any traditional culture or ethnicity who just, you know, comes from that mindset. Like you just suck it up and depression is weakness and anxiety is, you know, being a wimp and you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you don't tell anybody or burden anybody with your problems. You just bury yourself in alcohol and, you know, like they did in the old country. Or work or (laughs) Or having kids or school or whatever. Yeah. And, And so I think that that is little by little by little. And of course, you know, I live in an urban environment. I live, you know, in in a nice community. So I will say this seems very normal to me in my bubble. And there are parts of even the United States that probably would strongly disagree and say, no, mental health, you know, having mental illness is still a a weakness and a character defect. And, but I do think the tides are turning and um, that more and more people are accepting and understanding. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think kind of just to kind of to bring it, you know, back is, is we are in a time period of, again, you know, this, this kind of vast, uh, you know, hopefully we're moving into a time of healing now instead of just, uh, of the grief moment, but, but especially anyone who works in, um, you know, helping careers which in mm-hmm. fitness you know it is a helping career people that are nurses yeah. any kind of frontline workers um it, it's 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 imperative to think about these things and take care of these things because you're just getting hammered not just in your own life in a lot of ways we suspend our own ability to kind of deal with these things because we are helping other people in whatever realms they are. And, and, and I think that that, that can be, I mean, I just see it in coworkers and people I work with and you work now with a lot of fitness people and you're around a lot of other clinicians. And, and, you know, I, I'm sure that yeah. the, 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 cause I know my, me personally, some of the people that are struggling the most that I work with are psychologists, are mm. psychiatrists, are people in mental health. Mm. Um, and, and the comments I get from them are, are often like, like I just, it's been so hard because, and mm. they're so, they're empathetic. You know, they got into this because they wanted to help people. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's very hard. Um, if, if there's not at least some detachment there. And, and I think a lot, and I, I say to my clients, the crazy thing is I have clients who are, you know, clinical psychologists dealing with patients. And I say, okay, do you talk to your therapist? Well, I'm not really working with anyone right now. And I'm like, come on. Come on, <laughs> come on, Aww. like, you know, you know, and, and they do. They're like, I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's like, they can't find the time. And it's like all of us, all of our shit, you know, we all do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, there's, but I think yeah. that, um, you know, if, if anyone's, you know, just, just people can, there's, there's all these telehealth things now. It's, it's, it's like you said, there's a lot more inroads. There's a lot more doors. There's a lot um, more and it doesn't even necessarily have to be psychotherapy. I mean, there's there's counselors out there, but I think that all roads lead to Rome. And I want to say two things about the helping professions. But, you know, number one, if you get support for yourself and you get help for yourself, you're taking care of yourself. Um, 
and that's awesome. Uh, the other thing is if, if you are a massage therapist or a nutrition coach or a strength coach or a personal trainer, you are a helping professional. That relationship, you know, it's between two people, but the focus is one of those two people. So it's not the same as friendship. It's not bi-directional. So by very virtue of being the helping professional, you are taking on more than what you are putting out there for the other person, emotionally speaking, hence the payment part of the relationship, right? right? So it's appropriate, but it's important to keep in mind, maybe you're not listening to people's trauma stories. Maybe you're not a mental health professional, but that doesn't mean that you're not enduring a lot because that person has a time and a space where you are focused on them. And that is awesome for them. That is self-care for them. So whether they're complaining to you or they're teary or they just feel really stressed and, and heavy or they're just telling you about their life and it seems like there's no solution and it's draining you because you feel like you can't solve the problem. All of that is very real and means that you need to take good care of yourself as well. You know, I've heard, I've heard people who are coaches say like, well, I'm not doing what you do. You know, I'm not listening. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're not providing service and care for another person who's not doing that same thing back to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a personal trainer with a 10-hour floor shift, Ugh. that's an exhausting profession. And it's not because you're counting reps or moving weights. No. You're on. You're on. You're on. And you're dealing with the person at the first appointment of the morning who's like going 1,000 miles an hour and, you know, doesn't stop for lunch until 3 p.m. And then is like drinking a bottle of wine and 2,500 calories for dinner. You know, so you're trying to communicate with that person. And then two hours later, you've got someone who's home with a couple of kids and um, is around food all day long and feels like that's her only way to get time for herself and, you know, is at a different, completely different level. And so you're code switching all the time. You're shifting strategies and what energy level you're at and how much talking and listening you're doing over and over and over again. And you and how you're doing and, and whether or not you need to pee or eat a snack is like completely at the back of your mind. Um, and so I just think it's a tremendous amount of psychological work and focus on someone else other than you. Um, and that you're really not talk, thinking about that or getting any training on that before you go into that kind of work environment. Which I think is the perfect segue to tie this all up in... How can people learn more about this stuff, uh, especially people in the, in the fitness profession? Um, and, and where can they find your course? Thank you. So please follow me on Instagram. That is like my little pet project. I don't even know if I should call it that. It's like my forever project um, where I try to weave together, you know, strength training and exercise with mental health and um, performance enhancement. That's um, at Dr. Lewis Consulting. And then uh, my course, which is called Psych Skills for Fitness Pros Volume 1, focuses on motivation, the stages of change, and motivational interviewing. And that you can also find on my website uh, if you go to drlewisconsulting.com. And on the products page, you can click on Psych Skills for Fit Pros um, and find the product there. You can also sign up for my newsletter where I send out weekly like updates and um, content, uh, and special discounts for folks who, you know, read the newsletter. 
Um, and also on my website, you can, on the media page, you can see articles I've written or other podcasts I've done just if you want to read or listen to more. And I should note, uh, you're very strong. So you guys will get to see some, it's not, there's, there is no, there is Thank no you. like pink dumbbell stuff going on there. There's a lot of like, uh, pretty serious strength training. It actually, I, I finally got back to doing some deadlifts cause you know, like one of the, so, so I also just to kind of close out, you, you often complain about, um, back pain or like you've, you've had some issues with like deadlifting in the past and like the mental blocks. And so I hurt myself, my back years ago. And so like, mm. I have a huge mental block on, on, on deadlifting. And so that's, uh. that's kind of my thing now is that like I go in now and I'm like, okay, like, can I, can I, can I get past this? Cause honestly, I swear I get hurt because of the, the psychology of it, like I really do. Mm. Um, and like that there's, there's weird little things in there that, that, that people will take. And, and it's, um, I love the weaving of the strength and the, and the psychology and, uh, it, it's, you always tie it back to like the exercise you're doing and the intent behind it. And, um, I think, I think it, it really, it ties a, a, a fun because I hate so much about social media that I, I like when there's, there's actually something that seems beneficial. Well, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot to me. I do, I do spend a lot of like thought in how to weave these things together because I think as, people who like to train, like you just said, you are in your head when you're training mm -hmm. and your training can serve your mental health and your mental health and fitness can help your training. And that relationship is so important. So, and you, you write for... these things very, very early in the morning. So it's also, <laughs> it's also impressive. Yes. That yeah. you've got that mental acuity at, at, cause I open up my phone at like six 30 or whatever. And you've already posted it. I'm like, wow, that, that's an early morning. <laughs> but yeah, but you should uh, least... see me at like seven thirty at night. I'm like <laughs> turning into a pumpkin <laughs> and not writing anything. So, Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. Again, you know, just uh, for anyone that's listening, um, this woman has had a a. I can't even really begin to to uh, uh, describe the impact that you've had on my life in the past oh, whatever year and a half or two years or whatever it's been. Um, just and again, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's very few people in this, in this world that I will tell everyone to, to follow and, and listen to and, 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 and promote. Um, but you're definitely one of them because I, I really think, um, you know, you're helping not just people on an individual level, but I think with this, this course, it, it, it has this exponential growth and, and that's something that, that I, I really treasure in the fact that, that so many people could be affected by this kind of this this thing so so thank you for being here and just thank you for everything you do well thank you so much jeb i appreciate your kind words and i love being a part of your show great thanks bye